On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform, and economics. Hi, everybody. My guest today is Dr. Scott Emberman. He is a professor of economics and education at Michigan State University. He's a research associate at the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, and he is a research affiliate at the Education Policy Innovation Collaborative, EPIC, also housed at Michigan State University. And EPIC, I think, and members of the EPIC team contributed to the study we're going to talk about. And happy to have you here, Scott. Welcome to the Closer Look podcast. Thanks for having me, Seth. Yeah, I'm really excited to dive into a pretty important, pretty timely uh, forthcoming paper in JPAM. The paper is entitled, To What Extent Does In-Person Schooling Contribute to the Spread of COVID-19? Evidence from Michigan and Washington. A big team here was involved. Professor Imbiman was just one of the many researchers involved in the project, Part of that is because they're analyzing data from two different states, Michigan and Washington. But we're going to give a shout out to everybody on the team. The team includes Dan Goldhaber, Scott Emberman, who we just introduced, Catherine Strunk, who's the director of EPIC at Michigan State, Brian Hopkins, Nate Brown, Erica Harbetkin, and Tara Kilbride. And so, like the title suggests, you're trying to answer a really thorny and what has become a really political question which is, did reopening schools after they initially closed due to COVID back in the spring of 2020, did reopening increase community-level COVID cases, hospitalizations, or deaths? Basically, COVID transmission. And this is a really important question because it involves trade-offs. And really, most policy decisions involve trade-offs of one sort or another. Here, I think it's very obvious, right? Reopening schools, on the one hand, is good because in-person schooling is good for student learning, student development, student socio-emotional learning, student long-run outcomes. We know that schools are good and providing an important service and, and investment in our youth. Also, parents benefit in the sense that they rely on the school taking care of their children during the day. But the other side of this is that in-person schooling, just like in-person anything, is going to increase risk of exposure to COVID. And so is that the right way to think about this in a nutshell, Scott? Is that how you sort of approach the problem? That's absolutely right. That is the right way to think about this. You know, it really is a a pretty sizable potential trade-off here between trying to manage and minimize the costs of a disease and how much, particularly with a focus on how much cost of that is is having on our children, but also how much the going through the school system itself and the children is uh, having additional costs outside that institution. But at the same time, there are real costs to closing schools. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because if you think about, you know, when we first started writing this paper, we didn't really know much about what the costs were of closing schools. There's not much evidence yet. We have a vague general idea, but, you know, this was a very new situation. And only, I think, really now is the data starting to come out that looks at the costs 
academically that potentially have been from COVID generally, and hopefully soon, much more detail on the co- academic costs of uh, you know having remote versus uh, in-person schooling. And so at a high level, just to preview the results, my reading of the paper is that y- you find fairly nuanced results, but why don't you give us a real quick overview, uh, and then we'll, we'll dive in for a sort of a deeper analysis. But what does your team find with regards to reopening schools and potentially increased COVID transmission rates? I think the biggest thing we found was, and it's not too surprising, but it's one of those things where you know, it's important to have kind of documented evidence of it, that the underlying rates of COVID in the local community matter a lot for how much this, you get an in additional increase in spread from school openings. And we found mostly modest impacts of uh, school reopenings on COVID rates. But these are clearly happening much more often in cases where the community rates were relatively high already. And so it, it kind of raises, it brings kind of two things here. You know, we try not to take a position on how much is too much. But what we do point out is that if rates are relatively low, it did seem that schools could be opened quite safely with very little increase in COVID rates. But if rates start shooting up, you know, you have to be much more wary. And of course, how low is low is also an issue. I mean, I think we saw the negligible rates relatively much smaller levels of uh, spread than, you know, community rates and like what we have today, like somewhere in the range of around 10 or less cases per 100,000 people per day. Obviously, right now, as we're getting through the end of the Delta wave, seems to be heading hopefully towards that direction. But for a long period of time, we were well above that. And this variability in baseline transmission rates across communities, I think also reinforces the idea of these decisions ideally should be made at at the relatively local levels, right? As opposed to say at the state level. I don't know how much that is the case, or rather that not as much a function of who's making the decision, but rather that what determines the decision should be based on local conditions in the gro- on the ground. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Okay, and so let's just quickly review a timeline of how we got here. Most, or, or maybe I should say all schools in the U.S. initially closed sometime in late March or early April of 2020, when the initial COVID outbreak uh, or pandemic began. At the time... I remember AU, uh, my university that I teach at, closed over spring break, and we thought it would be a, a two-week thing, and it, and it turned into much longer than that. Many people thought it was going to be temporary, but then is it right that most schools or all schools stayed closed for the remainder of that 2019-2020 school year? I think that's correct, at least in Michigan, Wisconsin. I think for the vast majority of the country, that was the case. I think some— Never reopened in 2020. Some, I think, attempted to. But that was pretty rare, yeah. And then, of course, in the fall of 2020, there was hope to reopen. But what actually happened in fall of 2020 and in that 2021 school year in terms of who reopened, when did they reopen, did anybody open and then close again? I guess in the U.S., I'm curious, but also specifically in the states that you study. I think there's a lot of mixed responses across the country and in Washington, a lot of mixed responses in how to handle school reopenings in the fall of 2020. Some places just started opening right away and some with masking, some without, and just kind of kept going. Some 
stayed remote for a good chunk, if not all of the year. For example, in, in the school district uh, my children attend, uh, they were remote from all the way through until about March of 2021. And even then, it was like a, given an in-person option. I think in a lot of cases, there were certainly, even if a school was in person, there were remote options and a lot of students were taking those. Thinking about Michigan and Washington specifically, Michigan had a very nice mix of schools that were open all year round, that start out closed and then reopened, or that were remote for the vast majority of the year. At the end of the school year, the state started providing some incentives for schools to offer in-person schooling. And so most districts had some in-person option by the end of the school year. In Washington, the districts were, it was much more likely to have remote than in Michigan. The districts were mostly remote. Some were hybrid. There were actually very few that had uh, full in-person options. And by hybrid, I mean some it ran, it would vary a lot, but it had some, ran the gamut from having some students in person some days, some others, some in the afternoon, some in the morning, but some sort of calendar shift to reduce density. So some of that hybrid was sort of implemented by the school. Half the students come this day, half come that day. But there was also a, a voluntary aspect of, of parents could sort of opt out of in-person schooling. Yeah, a lot, a lot of districts had that, where you could do in district. Typically, I don't think there were options between hybrid or in-person. The, in per, the quote in-person portion was either hybrid or full. But in a lot of cases, parents were able to opt out into the remote option. I, now, that's much less the case this year. Most school districts, I think, are now in-person and the remote options are more limited. Uh, some not offering any, some offering kind of very partnerships with other districts that they could go remote. The school system is a lot, in a sense, much closer to normal, whatever normal is now, but much closer to normal this year than it ever was last year. Was there another wave of closings this year due to the Delta variant? Not much. Most, As far as I understand, most of the school districts remained open throughout the Delta wave. And I think that's kind of looks like the path going forward. There, there are sometimes some brief closures if you have an outbreak in a particular school, and I've, there have been schools that have gone closed for a few days or a couple of weeks, but but not the mass closures that we've had in the past. And then, I mean, the other thing that we have to talk about is, like many issues regarding COVID and vaccines, the, the whole school reopening issue became highly political. But how did that debate shape up? And since different districts were reopening at different times, I'm assuming that part of that timing was driven by politics. Do we know anything about, like, did the schools that opened earlier, were they different in terms of the demographics of the county and so on and things like that? I'll take this opportunity to tout another paper by my MSU colleagues, uh, by Catherine Strunk, who's on this paper, and also my MSU uh, political science uh, colleague, uh, Sarah Reckow, and some others that looks at the politics of school reopening in Michigan and kind of understanding what drove politically these decisions. More generally, uh, when we look at kind of the the basic data in in our study, in our particular study, when we look at the basic data, and that, by the way, is available through the Education Policy Innovation Collaborative, if people are interested in reading that. We'll put a link up to the paper on the podcast website as well. For what we saw in our data, 
There clearly was a political element. Uh, so one of the things we looked at, in part because, you know, something we need to account for when we're doing our statistics, but also because it was worth, you know, something of interest looking at, was how much the reopening was related to, for example, presidential vote share. And we saw a very substantial correlation between whether a county voted, how much the, how the size of the county vote for Trump in 2016 was very positively associated with uh, school reopening earlier. And that seems to match kind of the what seems to have been in the news and in the information sphere across the country. Is that also correlated with, say, you know, prior test score performance or things like that, or, or not really? That's a good question. I only actually think we directly control for prior test score, but I don't recall there being much of a correlation with the academic characteristics of of the school, other than it was more, you know, tended to be more rural, that were more likely open in person. Again, the school openings really did seem to fall along political dimension rather than necessarily academic dimensions. And that fact, among several others, but that fact alone makes your analysis really difficult, right? Because you're trying to identify the causal effect, the impact of reopening on COVID transmission rates, but we're very far removed from any sort of experiment in the sense that the schools that are reopening are fundamentally different from the ones that didn't. So how are you going to try to deal with that problem of policy analysis? So this is, of course, kind of the trickiest part of this. And it's one of these situations, I think, where you know, as policy analysts, as myself being an economist coming from that tradition, we try really hard to try to find these causal effects. And sometimes I think we have the luxury to really be able to dig down and really kind of nail that. And sometimes we have to be a bit more willing to, you know, make some assumptions that may not that we may necessity the situation requires of it, particularly for something that is this policy relevant. Ultimately, what we're doing is we're we're looking at the changes over time, which is the kind of the advantage of looking at the these COVID rates at these different districts and some districts. Oh, you know, so you can kind of track not just how what happens when you have one district versus another, and you look at them say you know at a later date, and you say okay, this one opened, this one didn't. What's their, you know, uh, the one that opened has a higher COVID rate? Well, maybe their their COVID rates are higher because partly because of these political uh, alignments in describing that. That you know, you have also all messed up with um, other social distancing and other methods that people have used to try to contain COVID. And so part of that is trying to look over time to say, okay, well, we can look at the change in COVID rates within a particular district, or in our case, in a particular county around the district, the change in the COVID rates and how that relates to the timing of when the schools reopen. And at the same time, though, we recognize that there are also other factors that may be at play, for example, you know, these uh, accounting for some of these political factors. Now, I guess I'm not going to get into the statistical details of it. It turns out that the way you do that method, it uh, sometimes accounting for a lot of these political factors on their own because they kind of drop out. But the important thing is that those, you know, that we kind of are cognizant of that. And, you know, we're thinking about how to the extent, what to what extent is the school reopening itself 
a potentially a proxy or very you know, for a proxy for other social distancing measures. And our hope is that the social distancing measures are you know roughly similar across the entire time frame, but the school reopening happens at a specific point in time. I think it's certainly compelling to make those within county uh, or within district comparisons over time. You're comparing the same county to itself before and after the schools reopened. But I also, I really like what you said about not waiting forever until you have a perfect study with perfect estimates and instead, you know, did a really good job, but maybe not perfect to get us a a usable answer for an important policy relevant question. And I just want to, you know, make sure our, our listeners understand that like, it's a pretty big achievement that you guys were able to get this study done so quickly, almost in real time, you know, and circulated to policymakers. I will say this, this is the fastest I have ever done a study before, like from conception to finishing it up to work to getting it published essentially all in less than a year. It's funny because like some people like in medical fields would be like, oh my, oh, you know, that happens all the time. You do the work and then like, you know, a couple, you know, a few weeks later and you submit and then a few weeks later it's in science. Unfortunately, I would say actually, unfortunately, our field does not work that way. It's a much slower process. And, but we recognize that it was important to get this done now because this is when the decisions are being made and we need to provide the best data we can you know, it, during when those decisions need to be made. F- fully agreed. And again, kudos to you and your team for, for getting it out, out so quickly so that superintendents and, and school leaders can can have this information as they make these potentially life and death decisions. The related question that come up, you, I guess, is you talked a little bit about, you know, the different counties are going to have different social distancing policies, different mask ordinances, and so on. But I'm wondering about the schools themselves. When a school reopened, was it business as usual as it was pre-pandemic? Or were the students and teachers in the schools wearing masks? Were there plastic barriers between desks? Were there fewer desks per classroom? How did the schooling experience itself change so again, I think that kind of varied a lot, certainly from state to state and from district to district. But I think most, in most cases, students who went to an in-person school last year had a very different experience from what they would have seen in 2019. A lot of places did have mask requirements. We still have mask requirements in a lot of schools today. And the CDC still recommends that masking be done in schools uh, today. There was more social distancing. Desks had to be kept apart. There was restrictions on lunchtime, for example. And uh, some, some, some districts actually just wouldn't serve lunch and they would you know, have half days or things like that. So there were a lot of differences. And I, I don't think there's any way, in person or remote, that we could say that last year's school year was anything approaching what's normal. And to be honest, I'm very, you know, I'm starting, starting to see the data coming out on what's happened to student, uh, students' academic performance over this time period. And it has me very nervous, very worried. I guess not in the sense of, you know, what's done is done. I mean, but the damage that COVID has done, I think, is going to be 
when we could step back and we look at what damage COVID's done to kids' education and kids' social development, I think it's going to be massive. And the data we're starting to see come out now is giving us early indicators that that is indeed the case. And that's a huge worry going forward about how do we deal with that. And I guess, I mean, partly that knowledge, that concern is, is part of what motivates studies like this, because reopening sooner, reopening carefully can minimize and maybe help gain back some of those losses. The other thing, I guess, related to that is for the kids who were in a hybrid setting or during the time period that schools were closed, do we know much about what kids were doing at home? Like, were they staying at home for the most part? Were they, you know, seeing other kids in the neighborhood, potentially spreading COVID outside of school, even while schools were closed? Or is that not a big concern? I think that's potentially a big concern. I don't know myself what the data shows on this. I will say that our study does find a pretty interesting little, I would call it a little nugget in it, that suggests that at low levels of uh, spread and when existing spread and when the schools were not densely populated, the in-person schools were not densely populated, there's, I don't want to push on this too much because, you know, it's just one estimate of the, the whole cavalcade of them. But it did seem to, to suggest that there may have been even a negative impact on COVID rates. And our theory for that is that having the in-person option allowed people who perhaps were had to put their kids in more congregate settings anyway. For example, they had to work and they need, they had like a bunch of kids that they were staying with or some sort of, you know, large group of kids that are being watched by, you know, an outside daycare person that they're taking care of. And that having a structured, well-regulated in the sense of, you know, having social distancing and masks and sanitation and good sanitation environment like a school, as long as it's not too dense, could actually have helped reduce COVID rates. It was kind of an interesting finding. It's not enough on from what we see to actually really say this is what's happening. I do hope that maybe someone, some data is out there where people can really kind of dig into this more to find out. It may have been that the wrong, it was the wrong thing to close schools entirely, and there should have at least been some sort of in-person option for those who really needed it, because the alternative in that situation could be a very unregulated, sort of unsafe daycare. Exactly. Or babysitting type. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And it highlights the importance for analysts and policymakers to think really hard about what we call the counterfactual. What's the alternative to this policy? Closing schools doesn't mean that COVID's going to go away and everybody's going to sort of self-quarantine. Like you said, some parents have to go to work and so on, and we don't know what's going to happen. So I think that's a plausible story and an interesting nugget that you find in the paper. And I agree, it would be great for an enterprising researcher uh, to follow up on that. All right, with that background in mind, let's dive in to the analysis a little bit in a little bit greater detail. The first question that I always have for, for authors of studies like this is about the data. You know which schools reopened and when. And then on the COVID side, you have information on COVID case transmissions. 
where's all that data coming from? Who collected it? Is it publicly available? The data is, I think, almost all, if not all, publicly available. The data is from the state health of Michigan and Washington State Health Departments and the Michigan Department of Education and the Washington Superintendent of Instruction. All that data should be uh, publicly available. The school openings also, I believe, at least in Michigan, was in part, was from a survey that was done by the state government of schools every month and identifying, asking them what is their modality going to be in the next month, whereas in Washington they actually had a, a weekly I think it started monthly and then ended up moving to weekly questionnaire of all the districts about what their modality was. So the states were definitely tracking this quite closely, which I think is also a little bit of a benefit over, you know, there are other studies that have used these national data sets, which are also very good studies. And, you know, they've used these kind of nationally collected data sets, but they don't, those are all kind of like asking for a certain point in time, what's the opening. And they were kind of inconsistent with how they followed up. So in, in our case, we wanted to make sure that we got directly from the state uh, education agencies. We felt that that would be the most likely to be accurate. And then the COVID data, a couple things here. This is measured monthly, is that right? We look at this once a month because we were limited in when the modality was measured. So we don't know kind of the switching of you know remote to in-person with as much frequency. The COVID data is much finer grained than what you actually ultimately use. Okay. And then... To be clear, you're looking at community caseloads. So you're looking at COVID cases of everybody in the community of all ages, not just school children. Yes, that's correct. And that's a feature of your study, right? That's not a problem, but that's what you want to focus on. It's intentional. And the reason there is because COVID, of course, is a highly contagious disease, you could look at theoretically... COVID transmission in schools. And some studies have tried to do that. Uh, for one thing, we, we thought about that, but the problem with that interacting with modality is that, well, if you're in a remote modality, they're not tracking, you know, by definition, you're not having a transmission in school. So this kind of limits what we could do from thinking about in-person versus remote schooling. But more broadly, COVID is kind of like Las Vegas. What kind of the opposite of Las Vegas, right? It's what happens in the school COVID-wise does not stay in the school COVID-wise. And so we want to make sure that we account for this broader community spillover to really get an idea of what essentially is the total cost on the health side of keeping schools open. And then on that health side, we've been talking about COVID cases, and I think for the most part, that's what your paper focuses on. But you also have data about hospitalizations and COVID deaths, if I recall, why focus on cases relative to, say, hospitalizations? What's the rationale for that? I think part of it is mainly that the, there were many fewer hospitalizations. And so it was harder to, kind of, to tease out what was the impact of the remote schooling on hospitalizations in particular because of the, uh, the lower case rate. And also was thinking about, yes, we want to look at the, the broader community, the broader community, but also thinking about who is it that's most likely to be directly affected by, by exposure in school, the children for one, and their parents. But these are all going to be relatively younger people who are going to be, have much lower rates of hospitalization and death than necessarily uh, the elderly community, which is where a lot of that was uh, concentrated. So for that reason, we wanted to make sure we didn't, in some sense, miss anything from focusing on the hospitalization and deaths in the cases. Now, I will say, it's not surprising, we did not find that much evidence of an impact on hospitalization and deaths. And that's 
in part because the case impacts, while they could get significant, were still relatively modest. And so you wouldn't expect that to really necessarily show up in the data unless we had much larger samples. Then you also raised an important question, which I didn't think about initially, but I guess is a well-known issue in policy analysis. Some people might call it the denominator problem, which is that when you're looking at positive tests, people that don't get tested don't show up one way or the other. Is that something you were concerned about? And do you have any sense of like how big of, a, of an issue differences in testing rates might be across counties or districts? Yeah, no, so absolutely. That was something we were concerned about. And that was also kind of, you know, why that's one of the downsides of looking at cases in particular. We thought about, in some sense, controlling for the testing rates or the test positivity, but that also opens up other issues that become other statistical issues that become problematic. Did you know the testing rate in a given county? We had the test positivity, which I guess basically you could back that out pretty easily, right? Just take multiple, divide the case rate by the test positivity, you got the testing rate. Uh, so yes, we would have that information. Basically, what we we landed on was saying, well, thinking about the timeline of when our study is. The big testing issue was really in the spring and into the summer, where testing was not widely available. And it became, it was very hard to get tests. By the time schools opened in these states in September and going into the fall, testing was pretty ubiquitous. So it was, there wasn't really the supply constraint anymore. Now, it's still the worry that of, in some sense, the demand side that, that people would get sick and they wouldn't be willing to get tested or they wouldn't feel like they had to. To the extent, and we would be worried if, to the extent that that was related to the modality decision. And it's certainly possible, uh, certainly particularly if testing, the reticence to testing also falls along this political spectrum that also is related to school reopening. So in the end, I think we just kind of relied on the hope that the, the differences wouldn't be that big enough to make that much of a difference. Uh, since we since we've got the supply, cons- we were much more concerned about the potential supply of testing issues that happened much earlier in the pandemic. So it's it sort of is what it is in a sense. I should also note that all of our analysis is before at-home tests become ubiquitous. And that also creates another problem for researchers in tracking the virus is that the at-home COVID tests, the, the, the rapid antigen-based tests, if you test, unless you voluntarily, first of all, the negative tests negative get reported. And the positive test will only get reported if you voluntarily contacted the health department. So there's probably a lot of missing information right now we have on COVID rates in general, but also makes understanding them from the schooling perspective much more difficult because it's just all this at-home testing, which I think is a good thing. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I think it's great that we have these at-home testing, but it does create these data quality problems, but you know, pretty much as of late spring last year when they started really come, coming into operation. So like in most studies, the data is not absolutely perfect, but as good as it's going to get, and it's, I think, good enough to make some valid inferences that can help inform policy. The other, this isn't quite a, a data question or issue, more of, a, I guess, an interpretation issue. And that is when we talk about like reopening 
the policy is that the school reopened as opposed to the policy is that every student went back to school, right? In that districts made schooling available, but not all students necessarily took them up on the offer. Is that fair to say? And do we have a sense of were there students that that declined that in-person schooling opportunity? Yeah, that's fair to say. And there certainly were per- students who declined the in-person opportunity when they, when schools opened last year, probably less so this year. One of the things that was nice was we were able to get some information on the attend on the the uptake of the students uh, in these schools. If they were offered an in-person option, what was the uptake? And important that was important because it allowed us to get a good idea for, you know, as we would say in econometric parlance, that you know the offer of something is what we call the intention to treat. We intend to have to for someone to do something in this context, and then the actually the take up of that, you know, what's the impact of the take up is what we call the average of treatment effect, right? What what's the impact of actually getting it? And one thing we're able to show is because we know the share of students who take up the in-person modality. Do you know that number offhand, what the take-up rate was? I don't know. We only have them in categories. So we have like a bins of like, you know, 25% to you know, 0 to 25 and, and, so, and, you know, 25 to 50% and so on. And unfortunately, I don't have the actual raw numbers here. But what I can tell you is... Aside from that thing I mentioned before, where you have like the low spread with the very low enrollment with like the low levels of uptake, generally the percent of students who actually uptake didn't seem to have much of an impact on the results for a given level of community COVID rates. So it it didn't seem like maybe in some extreme circumstances, the density of the school mattered. But it didn't seem to matter. Once you kind of get over certain community rates, it didn't seem to matter all that much whether 25% of the students were in the school, 50% or, or more. The ITT or intention to treat estimate is something we've talked about before on this podcast. And personally, I think it's one of the more policy relevant things we could know or estimate, right? This is ultimately, you know, if we reopen schools, what's going to happen? Well, the, the ITT will, will tell us. Let's dive into the results. You said at the outset there were sort of modest effects that were bigger in places with higher baseline transmission rates. Do you want to talk a little bit more in a little more specificity about those in terms of magnitudes and effect sizes and how they might compare to other interventions like mask mandates or, or something like that? In terms of the magnitudes, it would say, basically, we did not see that much above, in really any context, the highest estimate we saw was something like 10 additional COVID cases per 100,000 people. And this was in Washington, where you were up around the existing case rates were up around like 20 to 25 per 100,000 people. So it's like a 50% increase? Yeah, that was like the peak of what we would get. And more typically, you would see, if we looked at kind of like the average estimate, it was more around two case extra cases per 100,000 in Michigan, or you know maybe around like five extra cases per 100,000 in Washington. You know, so on average, that's, that's, what, that's what we're looking at in the range of 
I guess we could say two to five extra cases per 100,000 people. Keep in mind that if you look at the current case rates today, we're, you know, nationwide, we're looking at, we're in the range of, I believe, around 30 or 40 cases per 100,000 per day. I don't have the number in front of me, but in that broad range. So we're still well above. It's a small percentage. Yeah. And we're, we're well above today where, in some sense, our data runs out from last year that we didn't, you know, and this is probably in part due to the Delta, which is another thing to mention that you know, what we look at and that's important is that this is all pre-Delta. And, you know, I think it's still relevant, still certainly relevant. If anything, we might be worried perhaps that it's a lower end estimate of what the, the risks are because Delta being so much more contagious. But at the same time, I also think there was less when the schools did reopen, we knew less about the virus. First of all, there was less vaccination. You know, there was no vaccination, frankly, at least until the, the last months. And we didn't know as much about the indoor-outdoor transmission. And maybe there was more use of masking last year. But again, I think we, we just know a lot more about the virus now. And so that changes how we think about these dynamics. And I don't know if we explicitly said, but what exact years are your data in your study from? It's from last school year, right? It's from last school year. So we cover from August 2020 through April 2021. So it's all within the last school year. And it's pretty much the entirety. And like you said, entirely pre-Delta. So at the tail end, interestingly, at the tail end there, there was the alpha wave in Michigan. Michigan being like the one state that actually really got hit bad by alpha. But unfortunately, I don't think we just don't have enough data to really see, say if there's anything different about what was happening with uh, Alpha, particularly since during that time period, Michigan schools were that were remote were a lot of them were already switching to in person during that time. And that was commensurate with the Alpha wave. And just to say this one more time for our listeners to be super clear about it, when you talk about significant results, you're referring to statistical significance in the sense of, of sort of not seeing it as a fluke. But Magnitude-wise, whether the estimate is statistically significant or not, there's also this question of, is it practically significant? Is it practically important from a public policy point of view? And that's where the answer is a little bit shakier, for me at least, given how modest the effect sizes are overall. I think it really is in the view of eye of the beholder. And part of the issue, like I said earlier, is that we don't know really what the other side of this equation is yet. We don't know what the costs to learning were of closing schools or would be of doing similar things today. And also, it's, I think we're going to learn that soon. And it may, in some sense, if we're learning that soon, it may be too late for COVID at that point. But it's important to keep this in mind for, I'm sorry to say, the next pandemic, because it's going to happen again. And whether it's in 10, 30 or 50 or 100 years, you know, this is, we're going to look back on our experience with COVID and hopefully learn from what we did to make sure that that, that we don't make the same mistakes. And so when it's a, when we say it's modest, I would agree with that assessment, but I also think we don't know what, what's on the other side of the equation. Right. And, and we'll circle back to that at, at when we sort of wrap up with our concluding thoughts about sort of how schools should interpret your study and use your study in making their decisions. But before we get to that, I just have two last quick things about your results I wanted to try and nail down. One of them is, given that you do have this longitudinal data that follows 
districts over time. Can you say anything about how persistent the effect is? Or does the effect fade out? So like, I guess what I'm thinking is the school reopens, there's a rush of activity. There's sort of like a, a spike in cases. But then that spike fades out and the school remains open. Were you able to look at at how long-lasting these changes in transmissions were? We were able to look at that. And basically, we do find that there is a, there's certainly a spike once the school opens. It's actually quite a noticeable one, at least in, uh, in Michigan. I, I, we didn't really have the power in Washington, uh, sorry, the statistical power in Washington to really tease that out. But there definitely was a spike in Michigan. Uh, in fact, we saw that right after school opening, uh, or actually about a month or so after school opening, there was about 10 uh, extra cases per 100,000 people on average. And, but that did fade out. Unfortunately, I, I'm, it's not clear if it faded out because the school, some schools were moving in and out of in-person and remote. And so that kind of messes a bit with the data. But I think of, even so, I think a good chunk of that is the school's open. They have a spike in COVID. There's maybe some immunity gain, but also some better understanding of what they need to do to manage it going forward. Like, do you do a close a classroom or do you how do you make kids stay home if they're sick or things like that? So I think there was certainly very likely a learning process that was going on. And I, I guess, you know, uh, this is something where I think particularly for qualitative researchers out there, and I apologize if people have already done this and I'm not aware of it. And actually, I would love for uh, anyone in the audience who's familiar with work on this to uh, point it my way so I could take a look at it. But I'd be very curious to know, you know, what were you know, the interviews with like principals and school leaders about this period and like, what were they doing? Like what happened? How did they open the school? What happened after they opened? Did they have big spikes? How did they adjust their behavior? What did they learn in the process? I think that that in particular, it could be really useful information for us to have. Last thing about the analysis is I know we talked a lot about how the effects were bigger in the counties with higher baseline caseloads. Did you look at whether the effect varied along any other dimensions in terms of like, I don't know, county size or demographics or average income or, or things like that? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think we, we did much on that front. I think once we started cutting the data in these ways, we just lost too much precision with that. In closing, then, a, a few big picture questions. And again, we've sort of hit on these a little bit as we've had our conversation today. But my takeaway was that overall, it seems like there's relatively small effects. There's definitely effects. You know, reopening schools definitely cause a little bump in COVID transmissions. Of course, the trade off is that if you don't open, then kids are, are going to not learn and fall behind in school. And, and, there might be sort of knock-on problems with that relating to childcare and uh, so on down the road. So, you know, how should school leaders and policymakers interpret your findings? How should they use your findings? Are you willing to to say like, should schools have reopened sooner or later, or you know, do we really just have to wait until we see what the schooling effects are of the closures? I don't know. I, I'm reluctant to kind of take a stand at this point as to whether the closures were the right 
or the wrong decision. I think it does is very context dependent. You know, one thing we worry about in particular is that, you know, a lot of communities, particularly uh, minority communities, were hit much harder by COVID than uh, than others. And in those places, again, right, the context of what's the local transmission, what's the local risk. And in a lot of those places, the COVID risk was a lot higher than in in other districts. So that's certainly, you know, the, the, the potential health costs there quite a bit bigger. And at the same time, you know, we don't know what the difference was in terms of the education costs or whether or if there was no difference, still whether the to what extent the benefits outweighed the costs there. And so I think it really depends on what are the local conditions, what's the local preferences of the parents. And, you know, I, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were all just like, we need to tr- shut down to try to prevent this from happening, it was a different context than now where Let's be honest. I mean, okay, I'm going to admit right now, I'm I'm not that kind of doctor. Uh, you know, I'm an economist. I'm not a health doctor. So take whatever I say here with a heaping grain of salt. But COVID at this point does seem like it's going to become endemic, and you know, we're no longer, I think, at the point where we are like we have to, we got to keep this out entirely. That's just not going to be sustainable, particularly unless we get unless vaccinations increase by a massive amount. And so I think that's going to infor- have to inform what, you know, there are going to be more waves of COVID in the future. There, they may be high in some places and there may be communities, particularly under-vaccinated communities, that are going to be at particularly high risk. And the local leaders are going to need to take into account those risks, even if it's a temporary move uh, to remote schooling. And so I think that's where they need to look in the future is, Think about what the local case rates are. Think about what your local health risk is, uh, the, the, the population dynamics of your community, how, how well vaccinated are they, how many people are at severe risk of severe disease, and take that into account. You mentioned parents just now in your answer, you know, respecting parental preferences. Part of that is because a lot of parents were relying on schools to provide childcare, especially while they worked. And of course, their children's education, the average parent, you know, isn't necessarily going to be an effective educator at home, have the time and resources. I do want to make one clarification here. I don't want people to get the impression that remote schooling is no schooling. Like, yes, there is a big difference. And I think most of education researchers would agree. I'm not going to speak for everyone, obviously, but I think most would agree that the way the remote schooling was done during the COVID pandemic was a less desirable framework than in-person schooling would have been as far as their edu- the students' educational development. But I also wanted to kind of people have the impression that it's just parents there doing all the work for, for the kids. The teachers did a lot of hard work to try to move this stuff to remote. And so I think you know, we need to make sure we give them credit and also just point out that there is some learning going on there. The parents had to play a big role in that and the, the issues with childcare become extremely difficult there. Some kids may have been just sitting around not doing much, and part of that's probably because, you know, the parents may not have been around to be able to keep the kids on task, and that becomes difficult. But but it's not entirely uh, that case. Where I was going was also keeping parents' preferences in mind 
teachers are, like you said, hugely important. Most important part of a good school is having good teachers. Teachers worked really hard and went way above and beyond during the pandemic. Many of them did to transition on the fly to hybrid or online schooling. But specifically, in the reopening debate, how does teachers' own welfare and preferences factor into the decision? Do we know much about? I'm assuming there's been some you know, news stories about teacher unions, you know, having an opinion on when and how to reopen and so on. How does that factor into this discussion, do you think? I think it does factor in. For one thing, I don't think we have good research on kind of what the costs were to teachers' health during the pandemic. And I also think, though, that the availability of vaccines also changes that equation. And that for the vast majority of teachers... COVID becomes, you know, something that they can deal with because they, you know, they can get vaccinated. I think that right now the big worry with regards to teachers is teachers who are either unable to get vaccinated because they have medical conditions that prevent it or are uh, immune compromised and that they're at particular risk. And I think until we have a substantial majority, if not nearly you know, 80, 90%. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm saying this, just throwing these numbers out there. I'm not saying, I'm saying this as not that kind of doctor of school children vaccinated that these teachers in particular, the ones who can't get vaccinated are going to be at particular risk. And, and so that does need to be taken into account. The good news is, fingers crossed, it seems that uh, at least the school children over age five will be eligible for vaccination pretty soon. And then it become, I think, turns to the school's responsibility to start to, at, at the minimum, encourage vaccination of the children, potentially even require them at some point, uh, at what point that, that becomes the case, you know, obviously is going to, that's above my pay grade. And I think that- They require a lot of other vaccinations. They do. They do. My hope is, on a personal level, that at least when, once these get the vaccines for children become fully FDA approved, that they, they will become part of our standard uh, vaccination requirements. But I guess my point is until the student vaccination rates get pulled up, it's going to be hard to keep these uh, vulnerable teachers entirely safe. That's not to say that, obviously, that we shouldn't have schools in open. I mean, there's... No, but but schools can make accommodations for those teachers. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's going to be a potentially a need, need to do that, at least for the next year or so, as childhood vaccinations increase. Well, thanks. I think that's... You've given us a very... Uh you know, clear and thorough discussion uh, about what you found in your study about school reopenings and COVID transmission rates and the nuances in the results and the the different factors we have to weigh in, in interpreting them. Is there any last takeaway point you'd like to leave our audience with? The only takeaway point is get yourself vaccinated and when they're eligible, get your kid vaccinated. Let's beat COVID. I agree. Well said, Scott. And thanks again for joining us today. And thanks so much for having me, Seth. Yeah, thanks. It's been great fun. And, and I really enjoyed reading your paper. Our guest today has been Scott Emberman, Professor of Economics and Education at Michigan State University. Links to his paper, as well as some of the papers we mentioned by other members of the EPIC team at Michigan State. We'll get those up on the podcast website. And until then, I'm your host, Seth Gershenson, signing off. Thank you for listening. 
This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.